We invite you back to our text for this series, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. The series title, Solomon and the Queen. Solomon and the Queen. This will be our fourth message. We've introduced it to you in a couple. And uh, we began kind of in it last week with the similitude of Solomon as Christ, which we will continue today. So let's read the text. 1 Kings 10, 1, And when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels and bare spices, that bear spices, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store and precious stones. There came no more such substance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord. And for the king's house, harps also, and psalteries for singers, there came no such almond trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Thirteen verses we read, eleven of them pertaining to Solomon and the queen. Verse 11 and 12 dealing with Hiram there and the gold and the almond trees kind of conveniently inserted there. But again, we're speaking to you in a similitude on this subject of Solomon and the queen. We have defined that for you previously. It is in Hosea chapter 10, a similitude. And as I use that word, I want you to remember the definition I gave you. A comparative resemblance. So when I use the word similitude, that's what I want to fire off in your mind as a definition. And we base this, and I've given you the credibility for doing that, that many things in Scripture are in similitudes. Even the parables themselves that our Lord spake were similitudes. They were a comparative resemblance of things that everybody knew with spiritual meanings in that regard. And we proceed today on this with the words of our Lord Himself, Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, 
a greater than Solomon is here, Jesus said. So when we look at Solomon and read this narrative that we have read here and that will be our text for these messages, some people read it and just see a nice, neat little story with some admirable details. But a child of God looks at it with spiritual eyes and says, Oh, I see my Lord Jesus Christ in Solomon. And all the things that describe Him, I see Him, but I see my Lord even greater. Just as the Lord said, a greater than Solomon is here. And when we look then at the Queen of Sheba and her coming and her interaction to Him, we see what? Well, we see ourselves. The things that are described in her of her in those 11 verses are things that sinners can see and say, I see those things. I've experienced those things when I came to Christ. So thus, that's what these messages are all about. We began last week with the similitude of seeing Christ in Solomon by the things that are seen in him. I don't have time to go over all that. I realize we got some here today that weren't there then and uh, didn't hear that message, but let me just name them off real quickly and then we'll pick up, shall I? Here's some of the similitudes of Solomon and Christ that we looked at in chronological order from the book of 1 Kings and also 2 Samuel. Solomon was a prophesied king, so was the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon was of the seed of David, who was his earthly father. It was prophesied in Isaiah 9, Christ the Messiah would also be of the seed of David. The very name of Solomon means peace. One of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ given to him prophetically in Isaiah is the Prince of Peace. He also had another name that most people don't think about. Solomon did. The name was Jedidiah. It was a name that the Lord gave him through the prophet Nathan. Means beloved of the Lord. Nobody is more beloved of the Lord than the only begotten eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So a comparative similarity there. And we ended with this statement that it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 24 that when Solomon was born it is just simply stated the Lord loved him. Wow. And we finished with that. We closed with the text in John's Gospel chapter 17 and verse 24 in the intercessory prayer of Christ to his Father about the love that existed between the Father and the only begotten Son from eternity past before the foundation of the world and the creation of it. But let's dwell on that point as we proceed, shall we? What if your name was in the Bible and it said after your name, speaking of when you were born and who your parents were, and the Lord loved you. Well, the Bible doesn't have that in there for us like it does Solomon, does it? But yet it does between the lines. The Lord loves His people. The Lord loves His elect. The Lord loves those that love Him. He loved them first. So today if you love the Lord, 
If you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if He is the shepherd of your life and the Lord of your life, guess what? The Lord has always loved you with an everlasting love. And the very fact that you love Him by His grace is proof that He already loved you. So while your name is not there on the page like Solomon, it is nevertheless there in a generic way as His people, as a believer, and as having faith in Christ. So to God be the glory for that. The next thing we want to see in our similitude of Solomon and Christ is, and this again we're trying to be as chronological as possible, is in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 through 35. And that is that David commands Solomon to be anointed king. And again, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you're a student of the Bible and been a believer for very long, you know the importance that the Bible puts upon someone being anointed, whether it is to a prophetic office or to a kingship or whatever. Anointing is very important. In fact, the very word Christ means anointed. That's how important it is. The Bible says that Jesus is and was the Christ of God. That is peculiar and unique to Him and Him alone. Many have been anointed, but only one was anointed of the Father to be the Messiah as prophesied. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 1 beginning at verse 32. And King David said, Call me Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king. The king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. That was a privilege. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there, King over Israel, and blow ye the trumpet, and say, God save King Solomon. Then ye shall come up after him, that he may come and set upon my throne. For he shall be king in my stead, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. So as we sometimes say, there you have it straight from the king's mouth about who the anointed is, who the successor is, and all of that. So King David commanded the anointment as well as the appointment by those under him with his authority to make Solomon king. He's the only person who did that. He's the only one that could do that. That's important, right? David was in that position of authority. Likewise, of course, the anointing prophetically of the Lord Jesus Christ was prophesied, foretold, and executed, but in a greater form and fashion. Okay, so that's our symbol too. What are the scriptures that refer to that? Well, let's turn over to Psalms chapter 2 and verse 2 to begin with. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His 
anointed. There it is. God the Father, God the Son. Same. And then it goes on. Who is the Lord's anointed? The only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Christ meaning anointed. There it is prophetically in Psalms chapter 2 and verse 2 from David's own lips. Turn over in Psalms a little bit to the 45th chapter and verse 7. And here is a prophecy again speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might note in verse 6, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Again, that could be taken back to David. David was the king. David was the one in authority. David is the one who would name his successor. God, from verse 6, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. The front part of that, lovest righteousness, is told by many. The last part's forgotten by more than many. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Now we've got a similitude in a similitude because that was true of David. <laughs> We're talking about Solomon. But David is prophetically speaking here, not of himself, but of the one who would succeed him also in a type, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's doing the anointing. All right? The anointing is very special, very unique. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. Here is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that was fulfilled when we read Luke chapter 4 verse 18. Isaiah 61 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of the prison, to them that are, that are bound. And it goes on, now for time's sake I'm not going to read the rest, but it is repeated in Luke 4 and 18. And when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read those words during His earthly ministry... He handed the book back to the man and sat down and said, This day are these words fulfilled. Right here and now, in other words. But in verse 1 we read again, What the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. That's the gospel. So the anointing of the Lord prophesied by Isaiah of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, where, and how did that actually come to pass? Well, we just mentioned Luke. Christ read it. Christ quoted it in the synagogue of his brethren and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled. Meaning, back then it was speaking of me. I'm the one it's talking about. I'm here and now. I'm the anointed of God. I am the Messiah. And I'm here to do exactly what the prophecy said to do. So, as we say sometimes, make no bones about it. It's talking about me. We could turn to Matthew chapter 3 and look also at a type or form or what may be called this literal anointing and action and words that literally, if we're going to put our finger and say, when, where, and how was the Lord anointed, we might begin right here. Now, this is not taking away from the virgin birth or anything like that, 
But you might remember the Lord was baptized of John and then after that's when he began his what we would call personal ministry that lasted about three, three and a half years. He began that at about 30 years of age. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, And when he was baptized, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, obviously immersion, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I think we could stand very adequately on the authority of Scripture and say that certainly God the Father was anointing God the Son right here and right there as he submitted to baptism by the only individual he had authority to baptize, John the Baptist. The Spirit of God not being given to him in measure but without measure in the figure of a dove from heaven itself lighting upon him, and then God's own voice. So all those things happening then, there, and at that time, Jesus Christ was now anointed to do exactly what he said he was doing in Luke 4, anointed me to preach the gospel. After that he was tempted, and then what did he do? He began his earthly ministry. He began to preach the kingdom of God just like John the Baptist. Well, that should be sufficient, but we've got another scripture too that really backs this up nicely. Let's look at those, shall we? In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. This is Peter preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And in verse 38, he says here, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Okay? Peter is actually saying that God the Father did this. Well, if God the Father did it, when did he do it? He didn't do it at a young age. He did it, as we have just read, right before he began his earthly ministry to fulfill that prophecy in Isaiah 61 after John had baptized him. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And again, God was with David, God was with Solomon, God was with Christ in an even greater way as his son. One more scripture, if you'll allow me, in Hebrews chapter 1. And this is the quote from Psalm 45 and 61, 3 of Isaiah also, quoted in the book of Hebrews, just bringing it to your attention. It shows up again in the New Testament. So this anointing we're talking about, uh, I've not had to fill in any blanks. It's very clear what this was, when it was, where it took place. Hebrews 1 and 9, Thou hast loved righteousness, hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, and we could even put there, even thy Father, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. It was one thing when Samuel anointed David, wasn't it? That little ruddy shepherd boy. Remember that? I mean, that was so special, so unique. You know, Samuel was sent on that mission. God picked him out. God told him which one to anoint. 
Samuel would have left to himself, would have anointed the first one that showed up, the firstborn. He said, man, he's a fine-looking young fellow. I believe that must be him. He's firstborn. God said, no, 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 no. Hold on. And you remember the story. Even after all eight of them was there, I think it was eight of them, or seven or eight at least, and he said, no, that's none of them. Well, Samuel's probably bewildered by that. Well, well, who's it going to be? This is all. No, there's one more out there. Go get him. You know, that's very special, wasn't it? So Samuel was doing the anointing, but it was all orchestrated of God. And likewise, that little shepherd boy had a long ways to go before he ever become king, didn't he? Even in Hebron for seven years before he became king at, uh, over all Israel. But now, here again, David has said, you go and anoint my son Solomon in that regard. But God said, I'm anointing my son. And it was a greater anointing than what David did for Solomon. But nevertheless, that is the similitude. Alright, let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 2 now and look at the next similitude and that is Solomon's charge from his father, David. We've studied the book of Kings and put together a timeline and things in other times. And you know, fathers want to see their sons follow in their footsteps and succeed or do good or what have you. You know, you just don't uh, do like the prodigal. You say, okay, here it is, all yours. Do what you want to with it. You know, I mean, no father of any integrity would do anything like that. David certainly didn't do that with Solomon. And the Lord certainly didn't do that with his son, Jesus Christ. But here in 1 Kings 2, verse 1, we read, Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying... So again, this is very important. David's about to die. Solomon's been anointed king. And now David is personally speaking to him. Okay? So this is very important. I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore... And show thyself a man. That's important. That's important. You know, as I read this, you think, man, this is what sons need from their fathers. I mean, I won't digress much here, but you want to know what a lot of the problems in the world is? We don't have any of this going on. And the sad part is, a lot of times there's not a family for it to even happen. The foundation for this to happen is not even there. But I'm telling you, when the family was intact and God-centered and fathers charged sons like this way, whether they set them down you know, on their 18th birthday and do this, and I really don't think that's the way to do it, I'm proud to say I tried to do this with my son the whole time I was bringing him up. Uh, that's the way to do it. I'm not saying I succeeded. I'm just saying that's the responsibility Fathers should have to sons and mothers should have to daughters. One day I'm going to die. But you be a better man than I was. Be a better Christian than I was. Serve God more faithful than I was. Yes, follow after me, but do it better than I did it. I've told my son that and I'm not ashamed to say that. By God's grace, he gave me sense enough to know that that was something that I ought to do. You pray that... For Christian men and women and families to do that, alright? I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. And it's something that's fallen by the wayside and it needs to be done. 
I'm going to die, but you be strong. Show yourself to be a man, a father, a husband, a godly man. Well, how do I do that, Daddy? Here it is, verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord thy God. Here again. Keep His charge before you keep my charge. Right? Mothers to daughters, same thing. Keep the Lord's charge, daughter, before you keep mother's charge. What is that? Walk in His ways. Keep His statutes, His commandments, His judgment, His testimonies. They're more important than mine. As it is written in the law of Moses, what's that going to get me? That thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. It's a win-win. <laughs> you can't go wrong with that. I'm going to say this because that's what the text... You can't lose if you do that. You won't lose if you do that. That's promise. That the Lord may continue His word which He spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth... With all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. He goes on and says some other things. Moreover, thou knowest also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel, and to Abner the son of Ner, and unto Amasa the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed blood of war in peace, but put the blood of war upon his girdle that was about his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. Do therefore according to thy wisdom, and let not his whore head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness unto the sons of Basiliah the Gileadite, and let them be of those that eat at thy table, for so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom thy brother. Behold, thou hast with thee Shimei, the son of Gerar, a Benjamite of Baarim, which cursed me with a grievous curse, and the day I went into Mahanaim, and he came down to meet me at Jordan. I swear unto him by the Lord, saying, I will not put thee to death with the sword. Now therefore hold him not guiltless, for thou art a wise man, and knowest what thou oughtest to do unto him, but his whorehead bring thou down to the grave with blood. So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Some people read this and say, well, David's telling his son to murder some people that were his old enemies and so forth and so on. It's not that easy to label it as such. Both times it mentions here, in thy wisdom. In other words, you'll know what to do and how to do it and what should be done and simply do what needs to be done. That's what he's saying about these individuals, whether it was blessing or death. It was not revenge. In fact, it was generosity of David that they were alive and he was telling Solomon this. It was David's grace and generosity and long-suffering. So, this is not giving him the get even with everybody because I'm dying and I can't do it and I want you to do it for me. No, that's not what this is at all. If you read the stories and this and what is mentioned here, and you notice David said Joab was guilty of murder on more than one occasion. So again, Solomon's charge from his father David, okay? About what you should do, how you should do it, how you should conduct yourself, be a man, be what you're supposed to be. You're in a position of authority. You know, you can do things. This is what you do. This is how you do it. Do it right. Do it in your wisdom. All right? 
Where do we find a similar thing concerning Jesus Christ? Well, let's go back to Psalms 2 again. We gave you a scripture there a while ago, but if this is not a charge of God the Father to God the Son, I don't know what is. And so let's read this. <clears throat> we read to you um, verse 2 where it speaks of father and son there, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, and this is this Psalm 2 we've preached on it is conveniently broke down into four sections of three verses, each one. Let's begin halfway through at verse 6. Notice this. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That's a sovereign act of God the Father. His will, His purpose, His degree, decree to do that very thing. Yet have I set my king. It's prophetic here, obviously when David said it. It goes on to say, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Keep it in the context. Father and son. What did David do with Solomon? Similar to what we read right here. I'm handing the kingdom over to you. You're the one in authority. There's some things that need to be attended to that I didn't get around to, or it was not meant for me to attend to. Uh, you know, you're going to have to deal with those things. Think about this. Seriously. Ask of me. You know, the Father, to God the Son. I shall ask of me. I'll give you the heathen for thine inheritance. Did he do that? Of course he did. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Could God do this? Yeah, it's all his anyway. He does what he wants to. He gives it to whom he wants to. Notice this. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Some of that stuff we read about what David was telling Solomon how to deal with some of the enemies, that didn't sound very pleasant, does it? You know, he's deserving of being punished for his murderous treachery that he committed. Here, God the Father, God the Son. I'll give you the heathen, break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, etc., etc., etc. There. So again, obviously a charge from God the Father to Christ the Son. The next thing we'd say to you and introduce to you whether we can get done with it or not this morning is Solomon sits on David's throne. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10. You say, well, sure he did. That's a relatively mute or elementary point, is it not? No, that's a very important point. 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10. So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Let me get to the scripture now. Got the wrong one. Um... Well, I lost the scripture that says that. Twelve. 
Then, yeah, sorry, looking right over. Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was greatly established. Now, you say, well, what's this? Now, you know, again, that's relatively elementary, that's relatively mute, you know, what's the big deal with that? There has never been a greater throne for anybody to set upon or a greater kingdom to occupy than the one we're talking about. That's the significance here. There have been lots of kings, lots of queens, lots of kingdoms, lots of generations, lots of civilizations, lots of people of power, but the bottom line is, in all the record of human history, there's never been one greater than the one Solomon just sat down on. You say, well, what about Nebuchadnezzar? They were a bunch of heathens. (laughs) <laughs> that, was, that was not a special people. That was giving the heathen to him for an inheritance in a sense. This is God's people. This is God's kingdom. This is God's city. And this was God's man that's being replaced with his son. Think about it. There has not been. There will not be until Christ fulfills this, a greater kingdom than the kingdom that Solomon had. I want to make sure none of you are going to argue in your minds with me about that. I want to give you time to digest it and think about the, well, what of and what if and what about so-and-so. No. Alexander the Great, the Caesars, anybody you want to name, George Washington if you want to put him in there. Nobody was as great as Solomon. Nobody possessed the wisdom that Solomon had. Could do what Solomon did with what he had. This was the greatest it ever had been and ever going to be. To be superseded only by Christ and His kingdom. Think about it again. Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father. And his kingdom was established greatly. There had been a lot of bloodshed and a lot of the enemies of the Lord that went under David's sword, David's spear, David's feet, David's armies in order for Solomon to sit on this throne in peacetime and to do what he did with the wisdom that God gave him. I mean, go home and if you don't believe what I'm saying, go home and read your Bible. Read the life of David. Look at all he fought. Look at all he had to overcome. Look at all he accomplished to get to be that king and to maintain that kingdom like he did. And then literally, according to God's predestinated purpose, David was able to hand it all over to Solomon on a silver platter with peacetime all around him. It was intended for David to fight and be a warrior to get it. It was intended for there to be tranquility and peace so that Solomon in his glory and majesty could do what he did in peacetime, not in war. So this is big. Okay? (laughs) Let me give you the Scriptures... Uh, that refer to this concerning Christ and we'll stop there for this morning. Luke chapter 1 
Verse 32, 33. Hold your finger, finger here in 1 Kings if you want to, to compare. But we're leaving this with it saying, Then sat Solomon upon the throne of David his father. Luke chapter 1. Verse 32 and 33. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. Gabriel, the angel's announcement to Mary, the earthly mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, says, verse 31, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. These titles are so important. They have so meaning, so deep, so much meaning going so deep. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Got that? I mean, this is not only a similitude, it's not only prophecy, it's just about tit for tat. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Solomon sat on his father David's throne. Prophetically, Jesus Christ will sit upon the throne of his ancestral father, David. That has not happened yet. But it will. As surely as David, or rather Solomon sat on David's throne in the verse we read, Christ will one day sit on the throne of David. And he will reign over Israel, as we read right here, forever. And of the kingdom that he has, there will not be an end to it. The most unique thing about the kingdom that Christ will reign over is that it will be an eternal kingdom. Everybody else's begins and stops, but not Christ. And if you're familiar with the prophecies in the book of Daniel where it talks about the great kingdoms of this world, you know that were Nebuchadnezzar and the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, the Roman, and then guess what? There's another that's going to supersede all those. That's the kingdom we're talking about prophetically here when Christ will set upon His earthly father the seed of of David's throne. Matthew 19.28 Let me hurry and get these in here and we'll pick up here next time. Matthew chapter 19 verse 28 Christ speaking of that very thing of Himself. Again I emphasize He did not do this when He was here in person in His earthly ministry. Let me also say hypothetically and from a human standpoint he could have because the Jews, some of them recognized him, wanted to do that very thing and make him a king and give him authority and let him do like David, get them out from under the rule of their oppressors, the Romans. That was not the time. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory. Notice that. Future. Shall sit in the throne of His glory. Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging 
the twelve tribes of Israel. This didn't happen when Christ was here. What was the kingdom that Christ preached and the apostles preached? Yes, it was a kingdom. Yes, Christ was king, but it was not a visible earthly kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom. Jesus himself proving that by telling his own disciples, the kingdom's within you. The kingdom's not out there. The kingdom's within you. But here he's referring to the regeneration. What is a regeneration? Making alive. A life. A new life. Born again is what we refer to regeneration. There's coming a new time. A new time of life. When Jesus Christ Himself, as He said, shall sit in the throne of His glory. Just like we read of the prophecy of Gabriel to Mary there in Luke chapter 132. That's it. When, where, and how is all this going to take place? Without getting into a bunch of eschatology here at the very end, let me just read the Scripture in Revelation chapter 20 and we'll call it quits and let you go. Revelation chapter 20. You're familiar with the book of Revelation. You know it's part of the way through chapter 19. We see Christ coming as King down from heaven, the armies of heaven behind Him. In chapter 20, we see the literal millennial kingdom of Christ set up upon the earth. And verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And here it is. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. You put those three together, what the prophecy of Gabriel to Mary and Luke, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself when He was here upon the earth, and then we read it right here, this is when and where and how it's going to come to peace. And notice the saints of God are going to rule and reign with Him. What did Jesus say? You'll rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. So, it's so easy to read over there in 1 Kings 2 and 12. Then sat Solomon upon the throne of his David his father and his kingdom was established greatly and just leave it at that and go on. But if you think about a greater than Solomon and the great kingdom that is coming that has been prophesied and all that that's going to entail, you just cut yourself short if you didn't think about it. That's the kingdom our Lord's going to have. And guess what? Not only does that excite us and make us happy, and we want to see our Lord exalted and set on that throne and be glorified, and we want to see all bow before Him and acknowledge Him. If you're one of His children, you're going to be a part of it. We just read it. The people of God, the saints of God, ruled and reigned with Him. Now that's a secondary point to me. <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm glad it's there. We're not just going to sit back on the bench and observe. No, we're going to be a part of it. But the great part is going to be to see our Lord sit on that throne and rule and reign. As nobody ever has. I'll say it again, I've said it before. As men have only dreamed. And let me say to you again, the greatest fulfillment of men's dreams 
And how it ought to work and how it should work and how it could work is seen in Solomon's kingdom. Because there's never been a man greater than Solomon that had a kingdom to rule and reign over. And this is what the Queen of Sheba just taken back at. She just, she's literally flabbergasted. Folks, that's just a peek through the keyhole of what's coming. When Christ comes and sits on David's throne, <laughs> truly as He said, you see the implication of the words are greater than Solomon is here. We have so much to look forward to. And I pray this similitude, a few things we've covered today has been a blessing to you.